Well, good morning, grace and peace to you. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Sam. I am the pastoral resident here at Holy Cross, better known as the intern. So, and it's <laughs> my, my pleasure to bring God's word to you this morning. Before we get into our text, I actually am going to jump straight to the first point in our outline. This morning, you may have seen the title, we're going to talk about the God who fathers. And before we get into the text, I think it's actually important we take a minute to talk about this, right? The idea that God fathers us, that he is a father to his people. And that is because, regardless of who you are, we all share one thing in common, that we have all been profoundly shaped and impacted by our fathers. Now, depending on your experience, you may hesitate at that statement, but it's an inescapable reality that we have all been shaped by our fathers. We have either been shaped by their presence or their absence, by their love, affirmation, and celebration of us or the lack of it. And so I don't want you to think this morning that I'm naive, that talking about God as a father is easy for all of us. It's not. And that is because the reality is our fathers all have or had the same problem, that they're men. And not just men, they're men broken by the curse of sin. And so it showed in how they fathered us, that they were men with hopes and dreams and unfulfilled ambitions and frustrated potential. They were men who got tired and had bad days, men who lost their temper, and men who needed things from us, men who needed affirmation and love, men who lied or manipulated at times. And so as we start to talk about God as our father, we need to take a minute and realize that he is not like this, that God's fatherhood is based in and distinguished by his perfect and holy character, that God is a person, but he is not a man, that he does not grow tired or impatient. He has no unsatisfied hopes or dreams. He is perfectly fulfilled. He is perfectly relationally fulfilled. He is a Trinitarian God who Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has had all the love and everything he needs for all of eternity. And so he needs nothing from us. And so God, as our father, fathers us out of his love and his creative and good nature. And so what I want you to take away from this is that everything, every aspect of how God fathers us, every way in which he comes to us is done out of his perfect and eternal love for us as his children. God isn't like your father, regardless of how good or bad he was. He is a true and perfect father. Now, Again, I know this is a harder topic for some of us, and a three-minute intro is not necessarily going to set aside the scars or baggage you may have from your father. But what I want to invite you to this morning is to take a minute and to pray. Ask that God would, through his spirit, help you to receive how it is that he is your father, how it is that he truly loves you. All right, with that out of the way, let's get into our passage. It's Psalm 78, long psalm. I'm not going to read it all. You're welcome. But as you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word, and we'll read a few select passages. Psalm 78, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. 
Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might. And the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The psalmist goes on to explain how despite God's works in love, his people fall away and rebel over and over. And we pick up again down in verse 17. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their hearts by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck a rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord had heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of angels, and he sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power, he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sands of the sea. He let them fall in their midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. And they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them. And he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath, their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them and did not stir up all of his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. The psalmist goes on to describe how this cycle repeats over and over. God forgives and his people fall away and he forgives and they fall away. But then he ends the psalm with a promise that God is going to do something different. And we pick up in verse 67. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Pray with me. God of grace, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who fathers us and comes to us. And we pray this morning you would speak to us through your spirit and help us to hear what you have to say. Amen. Well, the psalmist begins the passage this morning by telling us that he is going to reveal to us a mystery. Dark sayings of old. It sounds like the start of a Lord of the Rings novel. And then immediately he jumps right in and explains what that mystery is. What is this ancient wisdom that he is going to share with us? And that dark wisdom, that ancient saying, is that God is a God who condescends to us. Now, what in the world does that mean? Condescension, the description of someone, a superior coming to an inferior and lowering themselves to their level. Condescension, something we almost always speak of in negative terms, right? Like, if you hear that I've been condescending to my wife or to a friend or to a coworker, it usually means I'm being disrespectful. I'm belittling them, and it's probably not going to go well. But we all know and understand that condescension is not only necessary sometimes, it's essential. And so what we see in God's condescension is just this. So, for example, right now there are half a dozen teachers condescending to your children, right? I condescend to my children, to my son. I change how I talk or act so that I can come to him in a way that he understands, and when I do this, it's not because I don't think he's, un, he's, I think he's unintelligent or because I think little of him. I do it as an act of love so that I can have relationship with him. So anytime there's a gap between two individuals, when there is someone who is on a different level, it is an act of love for that person to condescend to the level of someone under them so that there can be relationship. And so this is what we see and the uh, condescension of God. Now, maybe this is a new idea to you. Maybe you are a little unfamiliar with the idea that there's a gap between us and God. But just as we talked about a minute ago, God is not like us. He is different. And so there is a gap between us and God. God is eternal and perfect and holy. He is unlimited in knowledge and power, in creativity and love. And so just on the basic levels of ability, God is far, far beyond any of us. And so when we talk about God as a father, how does that work out? How could someone so beyond us have any sort of relationship with us, much less the relationship of a loving father? Only through condescension. Just as we condescend to our children because we love them and desire a relationship with them, so God condescends to us. Only his condescension is much greater in magnitude. And we see this in verses 4 through 8 of the passage. The psalmist recounts how God comes to Jacob. Jacob, the slithering con man, grandson of Abraham. And he promises, he gives a testament to Jacob saying, I'm going to fulfill the promise I made to your grandfather. And he also gives the people his law. He is giving them his instruction. He is telling them, hey, this is how you exist, how you live in relationship with me. There's two things we see happening here. This is how we see God's condescension. You see, 
the gap between us and God is twofold. There's the gap we've already spoken of, of his greatness and our lack of it. But there is also a gap of his holiness and our lack of holiness. You see, God is perfect and holy and we're not. We're all broken under the curse of sin. And so even if you're not, maybe you're not on board with that. Maybe you're not fully tracking. But if you just take a minute and think about, if there is a perfectly good, loving, and holy eternal being, and then you contrast that to yourself, do you think you're worthy of relationship with that person? Have you looked in the mirror and realized that you are not perfect, holy, and eternally good? And so even if you're not fully convinced of the idea that you're sinful and separate from God, I think if we're being honest, we would say, you know what, I'm probably not worthy of relationship with that kind of person. I am not good and loving all the time. I am not honest and truthful all the time. And so what we see is that there is a twofold gap between us and God, a gap of his perfect nature and his eternal goodness, his holiness, and a gap of his magnificence. And so we have to ask, how can we have a father-child relationship with a God like this? What does God do with this gap, with this barrier? Does he wipe the slate clean? Is he a cold, aloof God who, like a clockmaker, sets things in motion and then leaves us to our own designs? No, he condescends. What we see in the Old Testament is a God coming to his people, a broken, undeserving people, and saying, I will be your God, your Father, and you will be my people. And he doesn't just come to them and claim them for himself. He gives them instruction, his law. He tells them how to live and to flourish and to please him. And this is the incredible love and in how God fathers us through condescension. When we talk about fathers, I think there's something that's probably universally true for us. And that is that at times, we all feel that we're unworthy of our father's loves. Regardless of whether they have offered it to us or not, we can feel like we don't deserve their love, their attention, their praise. And I think this is a natural struggle for us because we were all created for relationship with God, our true father. Broken and separated by sin, we lack that in our natural state now. And so even though we want more than anything to be loved and valued by our fathers, because we're separated from God in our sin, I think there's a natural insecurity when it comes to relationship with our dads. It's just, I think it's a thing regardless of how good your dad is. And the crazy thing is, the irony here is that the one father we are unworthy of, whose love and praise we do not deserve, is the one who comes to us, who initiates relationship with us. He is not distant or cold, but he comes to us. He condescends. He crosses the gap himself. And so in this passage, we see a God who condescends to his people. He makes them his own. He gathers them in, and then he rescues them with his acts of power and instructs them with his law. And that brings us to our second point, the father who disciplines. Not only does God love us enough to come to us, to make us his, and to instruct us, he loves us through discipline. Now, 
this may be hard for us, but the reality is that discipline is maybe one of the most loving ways, if not the most loving way, a parent can relate or interact with their child. It's like, ah. None of us like discipline. None of us like either giving it or experiencing it. But discipline, when done properly in a parental-child relationship, is an act of incredible love. And we see this in the text that as God is leading his people through the desert, they rebel against him over and over. They doubt him. The, the psalmist talks about how you know God has led his people out of Egypt. He's provided for them. And yet they're like, eh, you know. Can God, you know, give us a steak dinner? It's an act of disrespect, an act of doubt. And what we see happen is that God punishes them. He disciplines them. But how is this good? How is it love? Well, discipline, when done properly in the parental-child relationship, is always an act of love because it is always the person doing the discipline who is who is bearing the weight of the sin, and it's always the person being disciplined who is receiving grace. And so what we see here is that the discipline that God gives to his children is not what they fully deserve. Instead, it is always meant for their restoration, for their good. Discipline is not punishment and equal to the sin necessarily, Instead, it's punishment with the goal of correcting the sinner. Now, in real-world justice, we hope that punishment is equal to the crime. Um, but there is always the case, and we all know this, where crimes at time are, are beyond restorative justice. That sometimes there is no amount of punishment that can restore wrongs that have been done. Some crimes simply require punishment. And so what we see happening when God punishes his people in the psalm is that he's not destroying them, he's disciplining them. He is not giving them what they deserve. He is giving them what they need to restore them to relationship with him. Look in verse 38 with me. It tells us kind of the key to this passage. Is God not giving his people everything they deserve for their sin because he thinks they've suffered enough. He's killed some of them. He has punished them severely. Is he restraining his wrath because he's like, okay, that's good. That's enough. That'll, that'll do it. Is it because he is letting things slide? No, in verse 38, the psalmist tells us why. It is because he is taking on the weight of their sin. It says, yet he being compassionate, atoned, their iniquity, and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. And that word atoned, translated literally just means forgave. God forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. You know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you may be wondering, is the, this word referring to the animal sacrifices or the, the, the system of worship and sacrifice in the temple? And it's not actually. I was surprised to learn that myself. Instead, it is a reference specifically to how God forgives his people and bears the weight of their sin. 
Timothy Keller, the, the great Presbyterian pastor who has recently gone on to be with the Lord, he spoke often and maybe more clearly about forgiveness than anyone I've heard. And he always describes forgiveness like this, that forgiveness is the person doing the forgiving, saying, I am willing to bear the weight of the wrong that you did. And that's what we see in God's discipline, that when God's people wrong him, they rebel against him, they disrespect him over and over, he does not give them what they fully deserve. Instead, he bears the weight of their offenses, of their sin, and he disciplines them instead like a gracious father. The discipline he gives them is not meant to make them pay fully for the price of what they've done. Instead, he takes that price on himself and he restores them to relationship by disciplining him, them. You know, this, this psalm speaks of different ways discipline occurs. It speaks of God disciplining them by giving them what they desire, which is maybe one of the most terrible and fearful ways in which God can discipline us. It speaks to him disciplining them by using circumstances and suffering to restore them to repentance. But the point of this psalm is not to just give examples of how God disciplines. The point here that the psalmist is drawing on is that God's discipline is always meant to be for the restoration of his people. That it is meant to bring them back to relationship with him and turn them from their sin. And so we see here that God is a God who fathers through discipline. That he does not destroy us or destroy his people like they might deserve. But instead, like a gentle father, he forgives. He bears the weight of our offenses and he is gentle in punishing us in order to restore us to relationship with him. You know, in Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about God's discipline for his children and it's actually given as one of the great assurances of our, of our faith, of our salvation, that if we are God's children, he will discipline us. Now, I don't want you to just walk away and go home and be like, all right, well, How's God disciplining me? Is every bad thing that happened a form of his discipline? Is, is this or that his discipline? Don't overthink it. The reality is that it, God will discipline you when you need it. If you are walking in sin or rebellion, God will graciously come and restore you if you're his child. So don't overthink it, but God will discipline you. And we all have experienced that or will at some point in our lives. The confession we use the Westminster Confession talks about his fatherly displeasure, how God who loves us eternally and does not reject us regardless of our failures, we can fall under what he calls his fatherly displeasure in which God, because of his great love for us, refuses to let us stay in our sin. And so as you think about God's discipline, do so through the lens that it is always done for your good and out of his love for you. And that brings us to our third point, the father who redeems. See, it's because of this, because of God's willingness to forgive, that we see the third way in which the psalmist speaks of God as our father, that he is a father who redeems his people. In verses 67 through 72, we see this. Let me, let me read it for you again. You can follow along if you like. It says, he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. 
Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people. Israel, his inheritance, with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So what's going on here is, you know, we see in the middle of the psalm, God disciplines his people to restore them. And in the parts we glossed over, it's this, the same thing happens like five times. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. God forgives and his people sin and he forgives and they sin over and over until at the end here, the psalmist tells us that God is going to make a way to end the cycle, that he is going to provide a way to deliver his people. And there's a reason for that. It's because... What's being acknowledged here is that God's people could never uphold their end of the deal, right? This whole psalm is actually a covenant document. It is speaking to how God comes to his people and says, I will be your God. It's speaking to how he faithfully upholds his end and disciplines them. He provides for them. He works miracles to deliver them. And then it also speaks to the fact that they don't uphold their end. They are not faithful. They are like an unfaithful spouse or rebellious children who, despite his grace, continually break covenant, break relationship with him. And it is here at the end of the psalm that the psalmist shows us that despite the people's unfaithfulness, God is promising to uphold both ends of the covenant, both his and theirs, because they could never do it. And so what we see happen in the verse is just this. God rejects the strong tribe, the leaders of the nation, the tribe of Ephraim, and he picks the tribe of Judah, the weak and small tribe, to be the tribe that he will lead his people. He picks, he rejects the sanctuary that has been lost by sin. He tells them that he will build an eternal sanctuary for his people, not made by hands, not a sanctuary that can be lost through their sinfulness, but an eternal one that will be his presence amongst them, regardless of how well they do. And he chooses David, a peasant, a dirty shepherd, to be the leader of his people. In all of these examples, the psalmist is making a point. He is showing that the redemption of God's people, the key that will free them from the cycle of sin, will not come from them, but it will come through the Father who redeems them. This is the only way God's people could remain in relationship with them. You see God intentionally rejecting their efforts rejecting the tribe that had led in disobedience. In some of the verses we skipped, the, the sanctuary that's being referred to, it's, it's a reference to the Ark of the Covenant that when God punished his people, he allowed to be stolen away because of their sinfulness. And so he is saying, I will build a sanctuary for you that cannot be lost by your sin. And so what you may be seeing here, and maybe catching on to, is that all of these examples point to something, and that is Jesus, that Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah. He is the true and eternal sanctuary, and he is the true and better David. And so that brings us to our last point, that all of what we see in God as our Father, all of his mighty works and love is most directly seen in the person and work of Jesus. That is, is through Jesus that we see the ultimate condescension of God. 
that Jesus, very God of very God, eternally begotten, not created, comes to us. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is the ultimate condescension and act of love of God. God is not just coming to us through prophets or through miracles. He has now come and taken on flesh to be one of us. He has come to gather his people, to instruct them and teach them in love. This is the ultimate condescension of God. He has closed the gap by coming and becoming one of us, not giving up his godness, not giving up the eternal nature we spoke of, but taking on a second nature with it, the nature of a man. It's crazy. God has come to be one of us. He has come to be close to us. He has closed the gap. It's in Jesus that we see that we have full atonement and the procurement of our discipline. And here's what I mean by that. Earlier, when we talked about God forgiving us, when we talked about God taking on the weight of our sin, that was not figurative language. God does not just soak up the weight of our sin. He does not wink at it or let it slide. He is a holy and perfect God like we've talked about. And so when we say that God has taken on the weight of sin, we mean it. We mean that he did something with that price. He put it somewhere. And so what we see is that in Jesus, the weight of our sin is fully acknowledged. It is in the sacrificial death of Jesus that the wrath of God is finally unleashed. You see, it's because Jesus was punished that we can be disciplined. Our sins and our offenses against such a perfect God were such that no amount of punishment could ever restore us to relationship with him. And so if he had unleashed his anger, his wrath to the extent we deserved, we would have been utterly destroyed. It's on the cross as God the Father unleashes all of his wrath for all of the sins, for all of his people, that we see where the weight of our offenses has gone. It is as God crushes Jesus, the one true son who actually deserved a relationship with him. As he rejects him, we see how we are restored to relationship with the Father. It is through the punishment of Jesus that we are made sons and daughters of God, that we can be disciplined instead of destroyed. And finally, in Jesus, we see the full, the full and ultimate source of redemption for us as the people of God. Despite our pitiful repentance and our cyclical return to sin, despite our lack of covenant-keeping, our continual breaking of relationship with God, he has promised an eternal source of redemption for us as his people. He has sent Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has done away with an earthly sanctuary and instead given us a temple not made by hands. A temple, a presence that will not be lost by our sin or unfaithfulness, but that will dwell eternally amongst us as his people. And he has taken Jesus, the true and better David, and made him the king and shepherd of us as his people, so that all of us who wander like sheep can be guided by the gentle hand of Christ. And so this morning, I hope you're able to see the beautiful ways in which God fathers us, that the eternal and incomprehensible God fathers us by condescending to us, by disciplining and forgiving us, 
and by securing our redemption. Ultimately, we see the work of the Father most fully displayed in the Son. We see that God loves us so much that he would not withhold his only Son, but that he would give all things to secure us as his people. This is the great love of the Father for you. He is not a cold or distant father. Even now, he is seeking to call you as his child, inviting you into relationship. Perhaps this morning, God is seeking you. He is coming to you, condescending to you, reaching out. Maybe you're already his child, and he is disciplining you graciously as a father does. Perhaps right now he is using the troubles or trials of your life to free you from your sin and your love of the world and to restore you to relationship with him. Maybe you have a heavy conscience and you are a little bit insecure as you struggle with your sin. How could God love you or father you? And this morning, God is seeking to father you by telling you, by showing you that he has secured your redemption, that you cannot lose what he has done for you, that he has redeemed you eternally and you are secured, and that Jesus is the good shepherd, the shepherd who will make sure that you finish the race. And this morning, regardless of how God is fathering you, it leaves us with the same question. Which is how will we respond? Will we lean into the God who has sought us? Will the Father who let nothing stand of the way, will we receive his love and come close to him as his children? Will we acknowledge the love and grace in his discipline, turning from sin and clinging closer to him? Giving thanks for discipline that restores us instead of destroys us, that God as a Father has atoned for our sin. And will we seek redemption, our only hope in Christ, the one who has taken the price for us, the one who has secured our relationship with God? Will we look to Jesus to guide us through the struggles of life? God is seeking to father you. I know it's hard to receive, but I'm praying for you this morning that you will be able to receive the love God has for you. That as he comes to you, you will be able to lean into his loving arms and rest as his child. Will you pray with me? God of grace, thank you for being our father. Thank you that you do not reject us or stay cold and distant, but that you are a father who loves us beyond our wildest imaginations to the point that you would give your own son to make us your children, to discipline us and redeem us. And we thank you for this. We pray you would help us to receive it. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.